morning, everyone. Glad you're with us today. I want to invite you to just make your way on in, and we're going to stand up together. Give all praise to the Lord. Let's wake ourselves up a little bit. Get some energy going into our bones. Lord, we're so grateful you've given us this day to worship you. Come on, let's sing this out. There is a sound I love to hear. Is the sound of the Savior's robe as he walks into the room. Where people pray, where we hear praise and see his face. up our song to you, worship you, come on, there is a sound, there is a sound that I love to hear, it's the sound of the Savior's robe as he walks into the room, where people pray, when we hear worship, he hears faith.
and sing the sound of faith. Come on. And as I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. And there's nothing to fear now, for I am safe with you. So when I fight, so when I fight, I fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. In every fear I lay at your feet, oh, I'll sing through the night. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And if you are for me, who can be against me? good news today for Jesus there's nothing impossible remind our souls of this truth today. He's an almighty fortress. He goes before us. We can put our entire trust in him today. I assure you, whatever circumstance, whatever situation you're facing, he is there. Maybe you don't see how he's working exactly, but he is working. He is in your midst. He is with you. He is at your side. He will never forsake you. So let's just sing this, remind our souls of it. Come on. And almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. 
Let's lift that up, give them all our exaltation.
when we sing these words, you're the worthy one. We're saying that God is, he's qualified. We're saying that he's the only one, that he's able, he's qualified, he can do these things. One of the things that Paul says in the, in the letters in the New Testament is the two, the, the only one who's able to keep you from falling. And so when we sing these words, we're not just singing them into the air. We're speaking the truth about who we believe God to be. And for some of you, if you're wondering what, who, what that is, we're going to say words of the Nicene Creed, which is a document that has been a, a staple. It's been a consolidated um, description of our doctrines for centuries and so maybe this for you is the first time you've actually said what it is that you believe to be true about God. But all of us need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel so that when we're saying, God, you, you are able to do these things, we have context for it. Lift your voice. Say this with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the word to come. Amen. We're going to sing this one more time. There's this chorus. Jesus, you're the worthy one with these words in our heart. Would you just trust him with your worship this morning? Would you trust him with the frustrations in your heart? Would you trust him with the prayers that you're praying right now? And as Seth and the team sing this over you, would you just hold those in front of you? He is, God is able. Trust him this morning. that we worship the Lord through our singing. And another way that we worship the Lord is giving with a tithe and an, and an offering. And what that is, is that it's taking the resources that God has trusted you with. We are only the stewards and he's given you a gift. And it's taking the first fruits of that gift and it's giving it back to him as an act of worship saying, God, we acknowledge that everything we have belongs to you. So we're trusting it to you. You can look at the screens for the ways to give. You can give online. You can give via our app. But what happens when you give is God takes what is little in our hands and it becomes much in the kingdom of God. And it becomes a catalyst for transforming lives and for providing a space for people to worship and encounter the living and, and true God. 
If we have not had an opportunity to meet, my name is Colin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. Uh, after service, you can find your way to Connect Central right outside the doors. We have a gift for you. I would love to meet you. I'll be there myself. There are two things for you to be aware of that are coming up. And December 3rd is the day to remember. You can mark your calendar. Two things happening on December 3rd. One, we are consolidating our 11 o'clock and our 9 a.m. service into one 10 a.m. service starting on December 3rd. And so what you can acknowledge, you can see in this room right here, is that everyone that's in this room will fit just fine at 9 o'clock. We have plenty of chairs for everybody. And what we're, what we're prayerful in this season is that there's relationship at 9 a.m. that is available to you guys that you're missing out on right now. And vice versa, I told our 9 a.m. service that there are stories that they need to know of that are taking place in this service. So this is a, a season for us to move into for the foreseeable future where we can be one body of Christ in one time. It'll make our worship experience just really robust and it'll help us uh, all feel like we're more together for a season. So I'm personally really excited about that. So mark your calendar for December 3rd, 1 10 a.m. service. Also on December 3rd, we're having a special offering, which we're considering above our tithes, normal tithes and offerings that will go towards our building fund. We are so thankful to be here at Grand Peak Academy. But we are hopeful that someday God will give us a space for our own. And so December 3rd, we are, are hopeful that we can start having a fund where, where we can have some funds that would allow us to look for a permanent space. Uh, thank you for your generosity. Before we open the scriptures together and hear from Pastor Rory, why don't you turn to one another, say hello, give a smile, give a high five, give a hug, whatever you want. You can take a seat after you have talked with all of your friends and met all the new people you didn't know. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Rory. I'm one of the pastors here. So good to see you this morning. We are going to continue um, in a series of talks we've been doing on the book of 1 Kings. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. And if you remember last week, we came to the moment in the life of of Elisha, where the, the narrative focus of the book of Kings has really switched from being about the kings, and it's now switched to really being about the prophets. And we find our friend Elijah, he's hit like rock bottom in his life, so much literally that he is laying underneath a bush at one point and cries out to God and says, God, just take my life. It would be easier than dealing with these people and all the stuff that they've got going on. And some of you can get that, because some of you said that about your kids today as you were trying to get them in the car. God, just take my life. I don't even need to go to church anymore. We find ourselves now, Elijah has been given a multitude of tasks as he goes back into the conflict that he was running from. And one of those is to hand off the mantle of prophet to another guy named Elisha. This was not like God didn't have a typo. This was, he was, there's a different guy completely. Elijah is handing off the mantle to a guy named Elisha. And so what we're going to do is pick up the story. It's just three verses today. So you could like, you will be able to track with me even if you don't have a Bible today. But the verses are going to be on the screen nonetheless. Verse 19. So Elijah went from there, there being Mount Horeb, where he's just had this experience with God, and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. 
He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, let's pray. God, we as your people again have gathered and are asking the thing that we always ask for, which is that you would be present among us, that you would give us some tangible sense of your presence being with us, and that you would speak to us. I know that what happens in a church service is we all walk in with the rest of our lives behind us, and we come and we sit down and we worship and we sing and we open the scriptures. And so, God, would you help us? Would you inform the way we interpret the rest of our life through your voice and through the scriptures? Would you help us see how you are at work in and around us? Would you help us recognize that you are the God who has always been there, who has been walking with us since we first met you? And as we do that, might we discover new things about who you are, and might we discover new things about how we are to live and exist in this world? We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. So we find in this moment, Elijah has been given very specific task. I want you to go find this guy named Elisha. I want you to anoint him as prophet. And so Elijah does that, which you have to imagine in this story, there's a multitude of things going on. In some ways, it's, you know, the invitation that there's something new is going to happen in Israel. You're anointing someone new. They're going to take on this mantle. For Elijah, you have to imagine it's a little bit of an odd thing because he's also anointing his successor, which means he is coming at some point to the end of the road of his work, that his role as prophet is getting ready to be handed off, which can be a challenging thing to hand off your roles and responsibilities to someone else. But Elijah, he's good, he's obedient, he's going to follow what God has asked him. So he finds Elisha, and when he stumbles upon Elisha, he's not in a tumultuous situation. He's not in a difficult spot. Elisha's life, if you read just below the text, is actually in pretty good shape. Elisha, he finds himself, he lives in a city, as we know, a place called Abel, Mahola, which means the city of dancing meadows. What a beautiful thing. No one has ever described Colorado Springs that way, but we would be the city of dancing mountains, maybe. We could say that. This place, Mahola, is a, it's a place where bodies of water would converge. And so it was quite literally in the desert, like this very green and luscious place. And the people who lived there, as far as we can tell, were fairly well off. They were wealthy. It was a place of peace and rest, which is to say that there was no war that was like touching the city was a good place. Elisha, he's living in this wonderful, beautiful place, a city of dancing meadows. And then his dad is sort of introduced in this story. What we can tell about his dad is that his name quite literally means judge or giver of the law. We don't know if that means he was literally a judge or a giver of the law, but what we can sort of understand from it is that he was at least someone who had some amount of wealth, some amount of prestige, some amount of power to find himself living in a place of peace. They're not living in the you know, in the thralls of a bad community. They're not in the midst of violence and hatred. They're in a good spot. And then when Elijah stumbles on Elisha, he's not just like sort of reaping the benefits of his wealthy situation. He's not, you know, being some punk kid, just sitting back, soaking it in. He's out working. Like he's out like, you know, quite literally foot to the plow. He's going after it. And Elijah shows up and he has 12 oxen, which we, I don't even know if we have some comparative to this, but it would be the equivalent of me being like, this person has 12 cars in their driveway. They are doing well. But Elijah, he's out there. He's riding a cow around. He's like pushing stuff to it. He's not just soaking in the benefits, although that is all there. He's in this place of wealth and prosperity, and he's out there working, which means he probably has a promising young future working in agriculture, doing well. His life is set up. For all intents and purposes, his life is in a good spot. The last thing he needs is some caveman religious person coming out of nowhere being like, I've got something I need you to do. And yet, Elijah shows up, takes his cloak off, throws it on him, quite literally puts the mantle of prophet on this young man's shoulders 
and he goes. Now, you can read this moment in a couple different ways, but it says that he immediately starts following Elijah, and then I'm not going to say he has some moment of apprehension. I can't read that out of the text. I don't know if he has some moment where he realizes what he has exactly signed up for. But something happens where he looks at Elijah and he says, you know what? Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye first, and then I will come and follow you completely. And Elijah and him have this weird exchange where Elijah says to him, what have I done to you? Which there's at least a dozen ways that you could read what that is. Everyone is a little bit torn on what is happening in that moment. But he says to Elijah, you know what? Go back, go kiss your father and mother goodbye. But what's interesting is that Elijah, Elisha doesn't go back and kiss his father and mother goodbye. At least it's not noted. It says that he goes back and he gets the 12 cows and just starts hacking them up just cutting them down. Now, I'm not an expert in butchering large animals, not going to pretend to be. We had someone in first service, though, who was kind enough to let us know, let me know from the stage, that it would take roughly one day to slaughter one cow. So Elisha doesn't go back for 10 minutes. This is not a let me grab my bag situation. He goes back for a good chunk of time, slaughters 12 cows, He grabs the plowing equipment, which had to be worth some amount of money, and just torches it. But he doesn't just torch it for no reason. He torches it so that he can have a barbecue for all the people in his community. He cooks the meat, he serves them, then he goes. Now, in the Christian world of discipleship, we would look at this and say, what a noble thing. My man is... He's been called to follow God. He's been called to walk behind the prophet Elijah to carry the mantle of doing this. And he's just, man, he's going all in. But can you imagine what the people in his community might have thought about him in this moment? He's crazy. The golden boy has lost it. You don't, Elijah, you don't need to do anything, man. You're, you're set up. You're good. Meanwhile, he's ripping apart the plowing equipment. He's setting it on fire. They think he's lost his mind. He needs to be checked into an institution. He needs a team of observers around him day and night to figure out what is wrong with this young man that he would throw all of this away. But you can hear in the story, if you've been around church for any amount of time, you can hear the echoes of what Jesus would one day do with his disciples to come up to them in the middle of their work And just say, follow me. Think about it. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting the net into the lake, for they were fishermen. They had an occupation. They were set up. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Personally, I would have asked for a clearer job description of what was going to happen. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. The call to Christian discipleship is almost always this act of walking away from things and walking into something new, but it's a mysterious new. You don't know what that is. You can hear it unfolding. Google did a study a number of years ago. They were trying to figure out what is it about humans? Like, what is it that we do that will cause us to say yes to following something? Whether this is following something on social media or it's literally like I'm committing myself to a brand. I'm going to sell out for this. They were trying to figure out what is it that makes people do it? And their conclusion, I think, was fascinating. Their conclusion was simple. People are willing to follow just about anything that either gives them a financial deal on something their friends are already following it, or they do something the consumer finds entertaining. So think about it. What they concluded about humanity is that we will follow things for one of three reasons. We are either getting 30% off on a pair of shoes. Our friends are already following it. So we've been like group think coerced into it, or it entertains us. Those are the things that we consider sane to follow behind. And can I tell you the like fascinating thing about God is he is none of those three things. God is rarely entertaining. God has yet to get me a discount on things I want. And I didn't grow up with a ton of friends who were doing it. 
The life of discipleship is completely counterintuitive to the way that most of us think about what we would be willing to give our lives to and follow behind. So much so that I think people in the world outside of the church even look at what, is hap- what happens in a church and they sort of say like, well, Jesus, net positive, God, unsure of, church, definitely out on. But I'm definitely out on the idea that Jesus would say, you can be a part of this if you were to leave all these things behind. So we can understand why when Jesus has a moment with a rich young man in the gospels and he says, hey, follow me. All you got to do, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. He turns away and walks away what? Sad. Broken heart. He just can't do it. He can't give it up. Think about another moment, similar to even the one that's happening here with Elisha. And a man comes to him and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, great, come on. And the guy says, let me go bury my dead relatives first. And Jesus says, no, come now or forever hold your peace. We live in a world where the idea of following something that would say to you, you actually have to surrender something, seems completely counterintuitive and completely ridiculous. And yet, that is the very call. That is the very invitation of what it means to follow behind God. And what happens when we follow behind God? I'd say it this way. When God invites us to follow him, what he is doing is laying claim over every part of our life. Every part. I say every part because church people are really good at letting God lay claim to some parts, but not every part. Most of us are really good at saying, God, you can have my Sunday morning from eight to noon. I'll do that. But if God were to ask to lay claim over our wallets and our resources, we'd say no. God, you, I will be a kind and good-hearted husband, parent, spouse. But the moment God asks you to love and forgive your enemies, we're like, well, not that much. A piece of it, but not that much. But what happens in discipleship, it is the act of God laying claim over every part of our life. And it is, in fact, good news. The first thing that I see him laying claim over in Elisha's life is that he is laying claim over any and all the expectations that he has about the trajectory of his life. And the true, same is true for us. That he lays claim over any of the expectations, any of the assumptions that we had about how our life was about to go. You have to imagine that Elisha had goals. He had dreams. And he had them because he knew he could, he could achieve them. He was the son of someone wealthy. He lived in a good community of peace. He lived in a space of prosperity. So you have to imagine he planned on doing this for the rest of his life. This is just what he would do. He would, in fact, be a farmer, and he would do well at it. He would, in fact, live in this community, and he would be the prime neighbor. And what happens is God shows up and claims his identity. He says, I know you were a farmer. I know you worked in agriculture. I know your life was secure. Now it's not. I I know that you had all the wealth and resources in the world that you needed. Guess what? You're going to have to rely on me for it. I know that you were the son of someone wealthy. Elisha, guess what? No one cares where you're going now. God steps in and lays claim over every expectation and assumption he had. He does that with us too. I think one of the ways that he does that is he lays claim over our identities. And the best way what God does when he shows up to us is he says, hey, you're no longer like a slave to sin. You're, you're a child of God. You're my possession. Your shame doesn't define you. Your guilt doesn't define you. All that, he, he steps in. He claims us in the best way possible. But what he also does is he looks at us and says, you know what else you have to leave behind? You're also not a people pleaser anymore. That's not how this works. You're worried about pleasing the Lord. You're not worried about making sure everyone else is, is happy with you. You may have had like immense security. You're going to leave that behind as well. I think quite literally we see it not just in Elisha's identity. We see how that unfolds, but we also see that he steps in and lays claim over Elisha's vocation. This is not the sermon where I tell all of you that you're supposed to go into ministry and be pastors or missionaries. I don't think that's true. I think that what often happens, though, is that God steps in and he reclaims the way that we think about our jobs and our lives and our careers. Elisha worked in agriculture. You can run every agricultural metaphor that you want. What Elisha is about to do is go out as a prophet and plow the fields of Israel for something new 
for goodness, for holiness to come out of it. God is reframing how we think about vocation. He does this. He, he looks at all the expectations, all the assumptions. He looks at everything that we're holding on to. He says, you have to lay those down. There's a journalist and a, a writer. He writes about sociology and politics and all sorts of other things. His name's David Brooks. And he has a book called The Second Mountain. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. Brilliant. But he writes this, talking about some of his religious experience. He says, that summer I took my annual walk up to American Lake, which is at the top of a mountain near Aspen, Colorado. I was in a spiritual frame of mind that morning, and on the hike up the mountain, I composed a list of all the things I would have to give up to God if he actually existed. My work, my reputation, my friendships, my life, my love, my families, my family, my vices, and my bank accounts. Isn't that true for us too? That if it, to walk behind God, to let him lay claim to our lives would be to look at him and say, you know what, there's a lot of things I'm going to have to put on the altar and we're going to see what happens with them. It's to put our expectations, our assumptions about how life will go and say, God, I guess this is up to you. But discipleship, I think often in the church, we think about it as this primarily internal thing. Like it's this thing that happens in us, to us, around us, but it's not a thing that causes us to look outward. But the other thing that I recognize God does in this text is that when God invites us to follow him, he's not just laying claim over our expectations and our identity in our own lives. He's laying claim over the way we see all of the world. You think about the way that the Bible opens up. It's with a God who is who's not interested in like hoarding over everything, what he does is he sees the potential goodness and blessing and all of it, and he releases it out into the universe. This is how God creates. He just speaks, and it happens. And he sees the world not as a place of, like, burden and broken. He sees it as a place of, like, goodness. He keeps calling it over and over again. It's not just that Jesus claims our very own lives. He changes the way that we see the world. I can't help but think about how often in the life of Elisha, we see this play out. We see it here in this moment. He goes back for whatever reason, and he slaughters the animals, he burns the plows, and then he cooks all the animals. Elisha throws like a massive barbecue for everyone in his city. And I don't know if you even have the idea of what throwing a barbecue for like hundreds of people. I think about the barbecue that we did as New Life East a couple months ago. You guys remember this? I was the one like manning the grill. And I was in charge for a short amount of time to make sure that 250 adults and children, I guess, were fed. It's a daunting experience, experiment and experience. The whole thing's an experiment. All of this, the church, the whole thing. And Shailene was running food, Mandy was running food, but you're spending all this time just trying to be like, can we get people fed? And you have moments of skepticism. You're like, we didn't buy enough burgers. This isn't going to work out. We have other moments of sheer doubt. No one's going to eat. We're going to set this grill on fire. And I think about what Elisha does in that moment, what he chooses to step into. He's been called into the, to carrying the mantle of being a prophet. And what he does is goes back. He burns the food or he burns the, he, I hope he doesn't burn the food. He burns the plows. He cooks the food and then he serves it to everyone. We get a picture of a prophet whose eyes are not faced on him, but his eyes for the rest of his ministry and his life are faced outward into the world. You see this play out in the rest of Elijah's life as well. I think about in 2 Kings. He shows up at one point to a city where the water has become bitter. And in the ancient Middle East, for the water to become bitter for a whole city is a bad thing. It means people can't survive. It's not just like, is it Fiji water or Dasani? It's like they can't survive. And Elisha has this miracle moment where he heals the water and it becomes sweet. It's no longer bitter. I think about another moment where he meets a widow whose two sons are about to be taken into slavery because their dad had debts and the dad has died. So now the creditor has come and wants to take these two kids as collateral for it. And so the woman comes to Elijah and says, Elijah, what should I do? 
And he says, listen, I think you've got a little bit of oil left in your house. You guys go in there, shut the door, start pouring the oil. It's going to fill jars, and you're going to take those jars and sell it. And sure enough, it does. These two sons are kept out of slavery because of this one miraculous act. Or I think about another moment just right after that where Elisha, he stumbles into a woman. He prophesies that she will, she will give birth. She does. She gives birth. And he prophesies blessing and upon blessing over this child. And even when the child finds himself wounded on death's doorstep, Elijah steps in to make sure that healing is brought out. What Elisha does and what he gives us a picture of for our discipleship is that when we allow God to lay claim over our lives, he lays claim over how we think about the entire world. It's not ours to consume. It's ours to serve and give ourselves away for. And if you're like me, you stumble into the question of go, well, how do we how do we do that? And hopefully this isn't just another sort of like trite, will you serve? No. The question that, that sits with me when I think about that in Elisha's life is how do we then, in our discipleship, in our lives, how do we bless the world? The first thing that I recognize is that the way that we bless the world is we see the other of the world. We don't become so insulated on ourselves that we can only see us. We don't become so tribal that we can only see the people in our church, but we open our eyes to see the other of the world, the people who are outside of the margins of society, the poor, the broken, and the marginalized. I think about the great complaint that the prophets lay at the kings all the time is that they have stopped seeing the poor. That's their great complaint. It's always, you have kings, you have closed your eyes, then you can no longer see the very people who need your help in the world. It's such, a harsh, it's such a harsh critique because I think about it for myself. How often do I stop seeing the other of the world? A question for some of us to ponder. I wonder if our spirituality has become so self-bloated that it's almost impossible to see people outside of our spaces. And what God does is reclaim it and say, no, you're to, be, you're to bless the world. So when you see the other of the world, it's not enough to just see them. We have to speak goodness and blessing over the other of the world as well. We're not just people who see that there are people who need something. We're the people who say, now that we see them, we can now speak goodness and blessing over them. I think about a group of people that we had from New Life East who just a couple weeks ago, they went out, they went downtown and they served with an organization who works with the homeless in our community. And this event that they were going to, they were just going to serve. So they, they stood at the doors and they greeted homeless people as they walked in and offered them a seat, helped them get food. And someone gave up, stood up and gave a little talk. And then our people, much to their surprise, were invited to come and sit down at the table with homeless people. And for some of them, this was like brand new territory. They've never sat down with someone who was so different from them within the societal expectations. And they sit down. And one of our congregation members, Bruce McCaleb, I called him and I said, hey, tell me, tell me about this experience. Tell me how it went. And he said, Rory, no lie. It was one of the top five spiritual experiences of my life. And I was like, how is that even possible? But okay, tell me all about it. He tells me all about it. And this was his quote to me. I wrote it down because I thought it was so interesting. He said, it was the first time I sat down with a homeless person without fear and without an agenda. It was the first time I just saw them as people. What it allowed Bruce to do was then speak blessing over their lives. They weren't someone to wonder if they were going to ask for something. It wasn't someone that he was trying to use to like make a ministry point. It was just a human. This is how we bless the world. We see people who are the other and we then begin to speak blessing over their lives. I wonder for some of us when the last time we like spoke a blessing about someone was. Christians are really good at being critical. We know all the things about the world that we don't like. But I wonder when the last time was that you looked at someone who was different than you, who was on the fringes of society, who was completely opposite of you, and you spoke blessing and goodness and life over them. Because you know what I think happens when we begin to do that? Is the next thing becomes the only option for us, which is we don't just see the other of the world, we don't just speak well, but we then begin to give away some of our life so that someone else can have more life. That's what we do. We find what we have, we find the plows and the cows, and we just start giving them away. There was a family in our church just a couple of weeks ago who had found themselves, one of the adult members of this family had gotten laid off out of nowhere, like out of nowhere. 
He'd been looking for a job now for weeks and nothing was showing up. Like he's a qualified guy, he's trained, he's educated, he has experience, brilliant, like just brilliant, and nothing was showing up. Another family in our church caught wind of this and they reached out to Colin and I and they said, hey, what can, what can we do to help? And so Colin and I go into pastor mode and we're like, well, you know, the church, we can, we can help with a mortgage if we need to, we can help with groceries, we can help with food. And they were like, no, 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 no. Like, what can we do? And I was like, oh, you want to do something. Not, you don't want us to do something. You want to do something. And we're like, well, you can, I mean, you can do whatever you want. There's, there's no rules on generosity. It's a wild thing. You can do whatever you want. So they send us a text and say, hey, tonight we're going to bring you something. Tomorrow we're going to bring you something. And we want you, if you could, to give it to this family. We don't want to be known about it. We don't need any recognition. Please keep up us anonymous. We said, fantastic. They show up, hand us an envelope. And I don't know what was in the envelope, but it was thick and it felt like paper. They gave them a gift from their own life. And I'm always curious when people have those moments. Like, I know we're called to be generous, but most of us aren't. I know we're called to give away our lives, but most of us don't. So I was like, tell me, why, why did you decide to do this? And they've been walking through this rooted experience that we've been doing around here. And one of, they, said, they said, one of the things that we've learned in rooted is that everything that we have been given as a gift is not ours to keep. It is ours to simply steward. So we have been blessed. So now we are going to give some of ours away so that this family can be taken care of. And I was like, that's it. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when God lays claim over the way that we see the world is that we can't help but be a blessing to the world. Now, I know that this sermon about surrender and God laying claim over our lives is not the greatest pitch on why you should follow Jesus. It sounds so hard. It sounds so complicated. It sounds like God is just going to rip things away from your life. And I can't tell you that's not true. But what I can tell you is true is that the good news of the gospel is that everything that is surrendered is returned to us as a blessing. That's not like health, wealth, prosperity preaching right there. That's the words of Jesus himself. In the middle of Mark, him and Peter get into a conversation where Peter, I think, is recognizing just how much he has surrendered. It says, Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. Not a couple things, not some things, not, not parts of things. We've left everything. And truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Catch Jesus' words there. He doesn't say, when you get to heaven, it'll all be made up for. He says, you will receive whatever that blessing looks like now, like here. He says, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children's field, along with persecutions. Jesus always throws a nice little cherry on top of stuff. And in the age to come, eternal life. For God, when we let, when we surrender and he lays claim over our lives, he promises full return on his investment. He is laying claim over us. We are surrendering to him and we continue to walk behind him. New Life East, would you stand as we get ready to come to the table? I don't think there's a clearer picture of that than when Jesus himself the night that he was betrayed, he takes bread and he breaks it and says, this is my body, which is given for you. Even that sacrifice is returned with the life that you and I now carry inside of us. He then takes a cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Every time you drink, would you do it in remembrance of me? It's not blood that's poured out for no reason. It's poured out so that you and I might experience living waters flowing inside of us. Everything that even God himself lays down is returned as a blessing back into the world. It's just the way it works. So I want to invite our communion servers to come forward. We'll form two lines down this center aisle. You'll come forward. They'll serve you a piece. Uh, they'll serve you a cracker that represents the body of Jesus. You'll then take that cracker. You'll dip it into the cup, which represents the shed blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for you. Blessings given for you who are the people of God.
Would you come forward to receive communion?
Feast, would you open up your hands to receive this benediction this morning? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. It is always a gift to see you guys. Uh, If you're a guest, we'd love to meet you. Say hi to you at Connect Central just outside of these double doors. For the rest of you, we hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next weekend.